Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They very much say to you, a transplant is not a cure. A transplant is trading in one set of problems for another set of problems. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't sound very positive, but... And we're very, very thankful for the extended life that I've had, but we knew that was very much a last resort. Hello and welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. <laughs> I'll be happier once this is over. <laughs> Tonight, I'm very pleased to have Adrian and Audrey Ferguson, and they've agreed to share their story once again. It's been in a book before, and it's been told many times. It's now going to be on a podcast. And I've jokingly said to you before, it will one day be a film. I look forward to the day when that comes out in the cinemas, when we can go back and sit together and watch it. Well, we've been talking about it for a long time, we're getting a film done, and so has our family. They've actually had this a sort of standing joke for years. Katie, she wants to play Audrey's sister, Moira. Emma, she wants to play Audrey. And a few others of the family want to be in the film as well. But no plans for films, <laughs> no, no more films, I'm afraid. Well, we'll organise a whip round if it needs funding. Okay, that's good of you. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your home lives. Audrey, you would like to start. Tell me a little bit about your parents. I know you grew up in a family of uh, many girls. Yes, that's right. I was born into a family, John and Anna Campbell, and they were full-time evangelists. I was the youngest of five girls. So it was a very lively house. Always had visitors around. Very happy upbringing. And obviously went to a lot of meetings because my dad actually had a portable hall which they would direct in villages round about the area, maybe have six to eight weeks of meetings. So wherever possible, we would be there to support these meetings. So we were at meetings, conferences. I think I was one of the few children in life who actually played at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> we lived at the other side of town. Uh, my mum and dad had fairly regular jobs by... Mother and father had met slightly later in life and were blessed with four boys. I'm the youngest of the four boys. Uh, different uh, religious background. My mum and dad were Church of Scotland, which is a sort of local parish church. They're very, very committed to that. And then at the age of, I think, four, four or three for me, the John and Anna and Jack and Lillian brought the portable hall to our housing estate. And for the first time in our life, we heard the gospel. Uh, I remember hearing that word gospel for the first time and thinking, I don't know that word. I wonder what that means. And thankfully, and praise God, it was good news. And we soon learned that we needed a saviour. And well, it was the, the goodness of God that it was Audrey's father and labouring friend, Jack Kay, that brought the gospel to our family. Did you find it difficult, Audrey, growing up with a, a, a dad who was an evangelist and full-time parents? I think in hindsight, 
in some ways, yes, we didn't see an awful lot of dad when I was very young because his routine would be he would study in the mornings, he would be out visiting around the doors in the afternoon and then there'd be meetings at night. Yeah. So by the time he came home at night, we were in bed. <laughs> but in that sense, it was quite difficult and sometimes away for long campaigns at a time as well. But on the other side, I think we had a great life. We had lots of company all the time. Our house was always full of people. I never had the problem of not having company growing up as a teenager. We had a big Bible class at the time, didn't we? Yeah. We maybe had 30 young people. We had yeah. a great time. I always felt at school when my friends were saying, oh, I'm out drinking and different things, I would say, well, no, I'm not. I've got, I've got something else on this weekend. Yeah. And it was good to have that alternative. Yeah, so it was good life. With six women in the house, your dad probably wanted to be away for long periods of time. He was slightly outnumbered, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> so you were both saved at a relatively young age. Yes, I think we were talking about this the other day. That yeah. Audrey and I were probably saved the same year. She was saved when she was eight. I was saved when I was nine. I remember hearing the gospel from four or five years old and thinking it was the most amazing thing. And I, I wonder why I didn't believe but. I remember just putting it off. That's, that was the truth. I just kept and putting it off. I suppose I was the same. went to many, many meetings. And although my parents were Christians and some of my sisters were Christians, that didn't make me a Christian. And I knew that. But again, I just hadn't done anything about it. And it was one night, actually, my sister came home from one of the portable hall meetings. And she was very upset. And she went through to the front room and she had a chat with Dad. When she came through, her face was beaming. She said, I've just become a Christian. Of course, we were all delighted for her. I thought this was wonderful. And then as I was going to bed that night, I realised, do you know, that means Moira's a Christian too now as well. If the Lord comes back tonight, I'm going to be left. That's yeah. really what hit me. And I said, I need to do something about it. So I went downstairs and had a chat with mum and dad and trusted the Lord that night as well. I think the 25th of January, 1980, would have been. I've mentioned to couples when I've interviewed them, how did you meet? But you two met at a young age. Both the families, it's almost like a meeting of the mafia. you got all of the boys on one side, all the girls on the other, and you come together for tea. Was it love at first sight across the dining room table? Well, no, it was quite the opposite. see... I was brought up in a family of boys. Audrey was brought up in a family of girls. And we had no experience with girls whatsoever. And Audrey probably had no experience with boys whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So when the fair came and got invited to John and Anna's for dinner, the girls ran away and I was left with my mum and dad sitting really no mate. <laughs> it was great. That was the first time I ever laid eyes upon Audrey. I don't even remember that first visit, it has to be said, <laughs> unfortunately. But later on, Adrian came to Sunday school and we knew each other through Sunday school and then he continued on to Bible class. And I would say we were quite good friends when we were 11, 12, 13, that kind of age. And we used to play tennis and go cycling and different things. And then it turned into a wee bit more when we were about 16, 17. Still very young, Dan, I have to say. Yeah, very young. So you do eventually go out, and I've written it down here, you marry on the 30th of September, 1994. That was ages ago. It was ages ago. <laughs> but a good day, I'm sure. Aye, it was a great day. It was a really wonderful day, and we'd looked forward to it for quite a long time. It all came to pass over 25 years ago now when you actually do the sums. 
Over 20 over 20 centuries ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at the math, and I'm I'm not. So yeah, 26 years ago, it was it was really wonderful. So we've been blessed. We've had a very happy life, and I really want to pay tribute to both our families who have poured a lot into us. My parents, who are no longer here now, and they poured a lot of kindness into both Audrey and I. And John and Anna have been absolutely wonderful to both of us, and treated us as best as anyone ever could. And you know, we've been surrounded by love and I guess it's not been hard to love each other because we've been so blessed to love all around us as well. You have got your first home. Adrian, you've just got yourself your first real permanent job, I believe. And yeah. and Audrey, you're working in the bank. Perhaps you could paint a picture of married life. And one area in particular I wanted to mention was you had a real heart for children's work within the village where you were. At that time, we were actually in the town. The first six years of our marriage, we were in the same housing estate as Adrian was brought up in. And yeah, life was busy, both working full time, having people round, you know, loving sharing our house with other people. We also ran a little boys class. Just it started from some of our neighbours okay. for sort of teenage years and they brought their friends. So once a week we had boys class in the house. Yeah, very busy, involved in the Sunday school as well at that time but we enjoyed sports as well we enjoyed going out cycling in evenings and swimming swimming different things and out for walks we had a great time really mm -hmm. the early years of our married life you know very much full of joy we had so many good laughs as well because Audrey and I sometimes were a bit forgetful and there was a young lad Gary and we said Gary come for tea and anyway knock at the door he was Gary at the door and we forgot he was coming for tea so then he came something out of the freezer and we had a, there was enough for three uh, that night <laughs> so we had a, we had a good time said to Gary come back again and we'll definitely not forget you knock at the door Gary was at the door we totally forgotten him for a second time <laughs> poor guy he was the only one we ever forgot the only forgot. person we ever forgot and the only Very person we forgot twice <laughs> well at least you've remembered his name now so that's good yeah I've never seen him for years no wonder <laughs> he's probably still turned up at your own house you probably forgot to tell him oh, the new God. address in 1996, I think I'm right in saying, you found out that you were pregnant. Perhaps you could take the story up from that point. Yeah, well, we were delighted. We were looking forward to having a family. And when we found out I was pregnant, we were absolutely delighted for about five days. <laughs> and then I started to take on well. It wasn't just normal pregnancy sickness, although I did have a bit of that as well. I started to get very breathless and I can remember trying to walk to work. It's maybe about a mile away and I walked to work and I was usually running quite late and I was trying to walk as fast as I could and I thought, I'm getting so breathless, which was very strange. This went on for a while and we contacted the doctor. And, well, to cut a long story short, it was actually a collapsed lung. Okay. So they initially took me in and reinflated the lung and they said, that's really quite strange that it's happened to you. Hopefully it's just a one-off. A couple of days later, it was down again. This continued for quite a long time. Pneumothoraxes, as they call them. Eventually, they decided we really need to take you in for surgery to see if we can stick your lungs up to stop this happening continually and also take a biopsy and see if we can work out why it's happening. So they did that, I think, February 97. They did that and they tried a new experimental thing on my lungs, stapling the cysts on the lungs. But when they went in, they realised there were so many cysts that there was no way they were going to be able to staple them all. 
Right. But they did a biopsy that time, and just a few weeks later, we discovered it was something called lamb. Do you want me to tell you the full name? Well, I've written it down, so I'm going to have an attempt, and then you can actually tell me what the real name is. So I had a couple of goes this today. So it's lymphanglomyelotomy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly or not, but I say lymphangioleomyomatosis. Yeah, you're better at it than me. (laughs) I I don't think it's related to myxomatosis. I think that's only rabbits that get that. (laughs) I think it's something different. So, yes, that's what it was. So I was diagnosed with that at 24 years old, and there was very little known about it. There was only about 60 women in the UK with it at the time. Okay. So they reckoned it was about one in a million, roughly. So it's very, very rare. And in the medical journals, there was one paragraph about it. Wow. So that wasn't hugely encouraging, really, to be diagnosed with that. And when we, we tried not to look at the internet too much, but eventually we did have a look, and we found a site in America that told you of all sorts of young women who were suffering from it. And the prognosis they gave was about five years. It came as quite a shock to us, really, to think there we were, just starting out in married life, and suddenly it's like the rug is pulled from beneath your feet and you might have five years to live. Yeah, I remember the doctor phoning me on my car. I was just driving down the road and he phoned me on a mobile phone, and the doctor told me that Audrey had this rare disease called lymphangiomyomatosis. I just sort of said, well, what's the treatment for it? And he more or less said there was no treatment, and... You know, I'm a very optimistic kind of person and it was a bit of a body blow that day and I got home and saw Audrey and she had obviously heard it as well. Yeah, we just had to get on with life as best we can despite that. And of course, we, we never do it in our own strength. We've always got the Lord's help beside us. He stood with us every day and we would just praise God for that. Yeah. I suppose you have excitement of the pregnancy and then the uncertainty of the prognosis had the doctor given you any hope as far as your kind of future treatment was concerned? No, and the doctor was very, very brief with me because I had just gone into the appointment myself. I wasn't really anticipating anything major in yeah. the appointment. And I think he didn't want to tell me too much. So all he really told me was, this is the name of it. And I was in so much shock, I never even wrote it down. I, just, I couldn't remember what it was. And he just said... It's not really to do with your pregnancy. Even after the pregnancy, you're still going to have these problems. We don't know how long you've got to live. But that's when he phoned Adrian at his work because he thought, I don't want to actually tell you everything he's now. So it was just it's sinking in gradually. But I had a fair idea of what he meant. Yeah. Did you notice a, a deterioration quite quickly of the capacity of the lungs? Well... It's a funny thing, lungs, because most of us don't use our full capacity, unless we're an athlete or something. So you're not using full capacity. But I can remember back in teenage years, jogging, trying to do this. this, I was in all the school races and I was jogging in the morning and having these pains in my chest. I never did anything about them, (laughs) thinking I'm really unfit. And I can remember carrying my nieces and nephews around and I was so much more breathless than my sisters were carrying them. But you don't. You don't really think about it at the time. So probably even before I was diagnosed, I was down at 80% or something anyway. But during the 24 weeks of the pregnancy, I went down to about 60%. Pregnancy was actually accelerating the disease. Okay. Because it seems to be hormone-related as well. Okay. 
So it was quite a quandary knowing that every sort of month of the pregnancy was deteriorating your health. But you obviously wanted to keep the baby as long as you possibly could. Yeah. Carry it as long as possible. It was taken out of our hands, really, because when Audrey was in hospital getting treatment, she had to have a general anaesthetic. As she came out of the general anaesthetic, she also went into labour. And it was very, very premature labour. Audrey was only 24 weeks. 24 weeks. And and Anna was born in the most remarkable circumstances. She was born in a absolutely ancient old hospital, which was probably there from the TB days. And she was born there, probably the first baby to ever been born in the hospital. With no maternity unit. (laughs) Really? They just brought what they call the blue light team over to try and help but she was so premature I mean she was only 1.7 ounces I don't know what that is in grams and kilograms I'd be under a kilogram I guess so she was very tiny I knew immediately that there was very little hope for her and what I did again coming down the road from because I worked at Lockery at that time just phoned one or two Christians and said could you start praying for us because we knew that when man can't do anything God can yeah. And it was, thankfully, I'm not trying to be big-headed or boastful, it was really literally was the first thing we turned to was prayer because we just knew that man, vain was the help of man to quote the scriptures and we just turned to the Lord. And, well, it had an unusual answer and the answer was no. It's, it's, it's still very hurtful, Dan, in some ways. It's quite a strange thing. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, we're talking back in 1998. It's a long time ago, and yet it's a watermark experience in our lives. Uh, it's changed our life. We're not in any shape bitter at all. We're not resentful of others. We're not resentful of those with families or children. But it's just a watermark. We still look back and say, what age would Anna be today? And Would she have been at university? Would she be working? Would she be walking her down the aisle and things? Not in a sad sense, but just on a reflective sense and we know that God has had a different path for us to walk. There is, in some senses, still the, a measure of loss and emptiness in one sense. Yeah. I remember reading the book that you gave me, and I don't know you know, if I knew all of the story. I'm sure I'd heard bits and pieces about what you'd gone through previously. And reading through, and I got to chapter 7, and it was a very difficult read. I'm sure it still isn't easy to talk about. One thing seems to have marked your journey, and that is you always seem to be traveling and you always seem to be surrounded by prayer. And one of the things you've just said, Adrian, is that, you know, it was a the first port of call. And so often in our Christian lives, it's the last thing we do. We, we go to the Lord when we've exhausted all of the options that we would humanly want to do. And we go to the Lord because we, we can't do anything. We've tried everything. We go to the Lord your experience seems to have always been to go to the Lord. Do you think that's maybe why you both are quite strong about it? I don't know if we're experts at that, Dan, really at all. (laughs) I think our experiences have been so extreme that we were so weak that that was the only thing we could do. We knew that this is out with our control. And I think it was the same with transplant. It was totally out with our control. Therefore, when we are powerless, God comes into our life and gives us his power, his strength, which is obviously far better. His resources are far greater than we could ever have. Yeah, I guess you'll be focusing on sort of the big crisis chapters in our life, but there's 
thousands of other chapters in our life where we've been faithless mm. and lacking in prayer and lacking in guidance and lacking spiritual exercise, just plodding away. Uh, and uh, there's so many, and we would say disappointments. But if you focus on the highs, thankfully, through God's grace, we've been able to go to the right place in the in the sort of very diff most difficult moments in our life. And I think even when it's so bad that you can hardly pray, you know that God is still there with you. Yeah. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. We always like that footprints in the sand poem. You've probably a lot of people have heard of that, but the man says, well, I wondered when I was at the lowest point in my life, where were the two sets of footprints? God walking beside me. And he said, oh, there's only one set because I was carrying you then. Yeah. Through all these experiences, we very much felt that the case, that we were carried through these times. It wasn't our strength. It was nothing amazing in us, but it was God's strength that was carrying us through. And definitely, even although the, the answer was no, that Anna would live, we just trusted God that he had a plan. <clears throat> you know, his plans are bigger than our plans. And we still maybe don't know the reason right now. Maybe we will one day. Yeah. But he has a plan for our life and we've been privileged to see some of the plans take shape as well yeah. over the years when we can look back now. And we're blessed to be able to do it together and we've never sort of looked at each other and said it's your fault that you're not well or it's my fault that you're not well. We'll just work through it together and thank God for this being together as well. So I just encourage anyone who's listening who having difficulties in your marriage or difficulties in your relationship, stick at it. No, God wants us to bring forth glory to him in our married lives as well and uh, while we are no great example we just know that you can't do it on your own you need both each other's help and you need the lord's help to to get through the challenges of life yeah i referenced the book just to see if anyone who's listening who hasn't read it it's called kept safely kept the one thing that comes across is that it's a very honest read we've spoke about the fact you pray and you speak to the lord a lot but there is a real sense in the book that it's out of desperation, it's in weakness, it's in uncertainty, it's in doubt on some occasions that you go to the Lord, it's almost a necessity. And you've spoke about that when you've been at your weakest, he's given strength. You know, you don't portray yourself to be some great spiritual Christian, but just the experiences you've been through have obviously cast you upon the Lord on, on more than one occasion. Well, maybe we should just mention that just for you mentioned the book that you know we we like to give the book away to folks who would find it that it would help to them, and if any of your listeners would like an absolutely free copy of the book posted to them, we'll gladly do that. So if they just contact you, Dan, and then we'll send it on to them yourself, Dan. So that would be wonderful if anybody like a free copy of the book. You can't actually buy it now because we actually own the whole world's stock of it. <laughs> It made it to the bargain bin, so we just bought the whole bargain bin. So we have all the, the, the world's stock of it, so it's only us that have it now. It's definitely worth a read. Let's move on. A very sad moment in your life has just passed. The memories and the scars of that are obviously still there. You know, they, they don't disappear. But Audrey, you're still very ill and only deteriorating. So where does your diagnosis go from that point after the issue with Anna and her sad passing? How did your health continue after that? Well, it wasn't too bad after that. I still had about 60% lung capacity. So I wasn't doing major sports by then, but I was 
at camp, I was able to go in the goals of the netball instead of <laughs> <laughs> running about like a mad thing or the hockey. <laughs> so I was able to do some things, but the five years, thankfully, wasn't the case for me. I would say over about 11 years, there was a deterioration until eventually they said, you know, you really need to go on the lung transplant list. Okay. So we always knew that was, you know, a possibility, but they very much say to you, a transplant is not a cure. A transplant is trading in one set of problems for another set of problems. <laughs> that doesn't, it doesn't sound very positive, but and we're very, very thankful for the extended life that I've had, but we knew that was very much a last resort. Yes, it was about 11 years deterioration, and I, I don't think I've got very much to complain about because I see people sometimes in so much pain, and I think to live with pain is a terrible thing. I really didn't have an awful lot of pain. Yes, I was breathless a lot of the time, and that gradually became worse. But because it happened slowly, I used to describe my perimeters, my walls came in slowly so that you didn't notice it quite so much and you adapted as you went along. I adapted from doing physical things. I still was picking up children for the Sunday school and until that became too much. And I realised one day when I had a, one of the children had a wee problem, I thought, this is too much for me. <laughs> I can't cope with it. But we did that as long as we could and, and taught the children until I was sounding too breathless even speaking to them. But I, I started learning to play the piano and different things like that that I could do sitting down. Life we, changed a bit. We had fun at camp as well because yeah. body still went to camp as much as you possibly could. And our role changed from sort of chasing the kids and making sure they get ready for bed and all these kinds of things to actually sort of being like a camp counsellor and she used to sit and the children would come to her and she would speak to them after the death of Arthur Pollard, who was a big influence in organised life. We had a sponsored run. There was no sponsorship involved. That's just what the young folks called it, a sponsored run around the fields at Fascally. One of the young people organised it and uh, Audrey and I participated and Audrey was in a wheelchair and I pushed her around the field. Now that was some fun pushing you around a field in a wheelchair, but we just did what we could in, in the circumstances that we were in. Just to speak about Arthur Pollard for a minute, again, just to reference the book, one of the things that comes out is that Arthur was very keen to try and encourage you both after your experience with Anna to get involved with children's work, which many people would probably have steered you away from that. I'll just touch on this for a minute. You see, Arthur had quite a, an amazing intuition, God-given intuition to sense what he could do to help people. I know that in other people's lives he's stepped in and, and helped people and just put a word in season. In our example, when we were the most unlikely folks to get involved in camp, we just suffered dreadful loss of Anna. We were at the lowest ebb in our life, Audrey's illness, and I suppose deep down I was probably depressed, to be absolutely honest. Mm. Arthur then says, would you like to do the camp? And for some reason we said yes. And then from the moment we arrived at camp, Bearing in mind, neither Audrey and I had been campers. The moment we arrived at camp as leaders, we absolutely were enabled of the Lord. And for 20 years without fail, we were able to do camp work. And it was just a most incredible experience in our lives. Yeah, I suppose we've always been involved in children's work. Sunday school as well. We've always had children round about us. 17 nieces and nephews, and we now have six great nieces and nephews. So there's always been children around. So there was no escaping it anyway. You just had to go on with it. Yeah. <laughs> and and we loved having them around. But somebody once said to me, you might have your own children, 
when you've got lots of spiritual children. I'd love to think that over the years, there's many of these young people have come to the Lord through the camp work, through Sunday school, and we just praise God for that. Had we had six children of our own, we, we wouldn't have had the strength or the energy to do a lot of these works. Yeah. Yeah. God knows best. I was thinking today about the interview and that's one of the things I was going to say and I, I suppose it's possibly cliched for myself you know I have no children but people say oh but you do camp work and you have spiritual children and you too I know have put your heart and soul into the camp work and that has been blessed and many children who come from homes where they're unloved and they've found that love and Christian kindness at camp that they've probably never experienced before. Yeah, and hopefully never forget. I mean, we are not claiming at all great big successes as far as numbers of people coming to the Lord. We have, in some ways, look back and we probably haven't much in the way of evidence to show for all the effort was put in. But we know the records are kept in heaven. And we know that young folks, whatever circumstances they'll get in, they would look back and say, somebody did actually love us. Somebody did show us the way of life. Somebody did tell us about the Lord Jesus. And we just trust and pray that these things, the words of kindness and love will come forth because we didn't do it because we were getting anything out of the camp. We did it because we actually wanted to put something into the lives of the young folks. As anyone knows that is involved in young people's work or camps, you're the one that's poorer for it. Pizzas in the freezer cost money, petrol in the car costs money, organising camps costs money, but we're not the poorer for it, we're the richer for it because we're able to pour into children the things that actually matter. You know, it's not about material things. It's not about the best qualifications at university. What actually matters is having Christ and making him precious in your life. Yeah. And it would be at a camp that you would meet a certain Mr. Ian Campbell, who would not only become a firm friend, and that's where I would first meet you two at, at their house, but also as your journey unfold and the treatment would begin, they would become most important him and Bitten. I remember in Audrey as well, when he first came to Perth, I, I just thought, what is this guy? <laughs> Whirlwind that speaks 20 odd minutes to the children about John the Baptist. I just thought, what is he? And then we we met him at camp. I don't even know if I knew he was a speaker at camp. And we met you at camp. the first year we were there, wasn't first year, it? He'd yeah. been in Perth a few months earlier and then he was a speaker at camp. And we just had it off from the minute we met. And He said, you must come down and see, meet my wife, Bitten. You know, of course, he told us she had horns and everything when she came from Norway. <laughs> and you know how people say that to you sometimes and you think, oh, yes, you know, sometime I'll do that. But we knew he really meant it. He, said, he kept saying, now, when are you coming down? When are you coming down? So we did make it a plan later that summer to go down and visit them. And he was right. We got him so great with Bitten as well. Yeah. The, the <laughs> a story, lovely time. The story behind it was... Just the, a few days before we went to Eden Bittens for the very first time in our lives, Audrey was on holiday with her sisters at Haggerston Castle, and I was left at home on my own for four or five days. Having to work. Having to work <laughs> and make some money for the family. But I must admit, and again, I don't really know how to talk about it, but it was probably the most depressed week I had in my entire life. It was just so sad, deep down sad, and I'm not that kind of person. I pick up Audrey, I was just so relieved to see Audrey. We then went to Eden Bittens. And we got to the house and we cried our eyes out that evening, didn't we? So there was the four of us crying our eyes out in Ian Bitten's living room. And I think once you get that kind of closeness to somebody, there's no going back. Yeah. They're part of your life now. They're, they're in your story. And so for thick or thin, Ian Bitten have got us as friends now. <laughs> 
we've brought them a lot of heartache. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, the three years I was at Cheddar Camp as a leader, Ian was the speaker. So Ian always said, you know, you sit at the front, press the button and do the music machine. And I had all these children and they would come up and say, is Ian's wife like that? Is is bitten really like that? And I said, she's the complete opposite to how he portrays her. <laughs> but bless her. The, the rumours that must go around about bitten. <laughs> but it certainly brought our friendship to Newcastle, which was to become a very important place in our life as well for the transplant story as well. It was great having all these friends around yeah, when we needed them as well. That's the Lord sort of making the way straight for us, isn't he? Mm -hmm. And that he's given us, first of all, Ian and Bitten, and then yourself and your mum and dad, Derek and Judith and Marion, Jim and Janet, who we knew already, and lots of other people, Ken, Clegg, and all bound around to this huge big circle of friends and family. And apologies if I miss anybody else in Newcastle. You're all very precious to me. You've made a, a, a new family for us, which has been wonderful. So when it did come to transplant, it was like home from home. Mm -hmm. We can get on to the fact that you came to Newcastle for the transplant. So you were put onto the transplant register after 11 years of deterioration. You had an awful lot of false alarms and journeys down from Perth to Newcastle. That's not an easy trip. So tell me a little bit about how the experience was of coming down, the disappointment of each time it was cancelled. How did that go? Well, I think the, the first call was probably the hardest one. It was in the middle of the night. They were usually in the middle of the night, okay. usually about 3 o'clock in the morning for some bizarre reason. And I think we got such a shock at the phone ringing, we immediately knew what it was. And I think Adrian just went into shock. He tried not to show me, but he, he said he was just shaking in the... <laughs> And then tried to shower and get ready to go. But, of course, when we went, because it was only a single lung that I was to get, they would bring, when they had a, a pair of lungs, they would bring someone who was needing a double. Okay. They would bring a left single and a right single. So you potentially had three patients there. And it was also dependent on who was well enough to have the transplant. There was quite a lot of factors riding on whether it would go ahead or not. And also whether the lung was still in good condition once it came out of the donor's body. So the first time we were thinking this is going ahead, we were quite nervous, but we always had a sense of peace. Every time we went down, once we got in the car, we were together and we sang and we passed the time. It, it seemed like a, bit, a quite a short journey, really, although it probably is about a three-hour journey, even in the middle of the night. But after that, I think it did become a wee bit more routine. In fact, when it was the final time, it was actually the eighth call. Okay. We didn't have the suitcase or anything with us ready, packed, because we'd taken out the car for some reason. And I said, well, ne never mind, Adrian, we'll be back again later. <laughs> <laughs> it had become such a routine, heading down to Newcastle in the middle of the night and being back for the morning again. But that time I didn't come back. <laughs> I didn't actually get the eight call. That wasn't a good lung. But they said to me on the final time, if you just wait overnight, we think there may be another one in the morning. Okay. And it actually was the sort of second option that I got. So Right. Yeah, it was quite an experience. And we continued with life as normal. We still ran the camps. We still ran Sunday school. We were doing just all the same things. But we also had to have a plan B. So we would say, right, over to someone else, this is plan B. 
if we're not there, <laughs> you run with it. Life had to be always sort of a bit more organised in that way. The book is called Kept Safely Kept, and the reason behind that is that on at least one of the journeys, we were just lost in the sense that we couldn't pray and we couldn't even remember the scriptures very well that night on the way down the road. But we remembered the words of that song, Kept Safely Kept, and that's what we just sang to each other. It wasn't even a hymn that we knew very well. I think we only knew the first first verse. So we just repeated that (laughs) dozen, twenty times or so to each other, and we enjoyed singing that song together. And that's why the book has been called that, Kept Safely Kept. There was another wee story too, and it's a bit a long-winded one, but I'll be brief. One night we were coming home, and it was the most horrendous night of rain. And we were on the way back from Newcastle, and it was somewhere near Dunbar. Horrendous night of rain, and in the distance, we could just see a tiny little red light shining. And I didn't like what it was. I wasn't just sure what it was. It was the visibility was zero, really. And I put the, the brakes on and slowed down. And thankfully, in the goodness of God, that red light was a car. I don't know, maybe half a mile ahead that had either broken down or stopped. And if I hadn't seen that light, I would have hit a river of water going across the main motorway. If I had hit that 60, 70 miles an hour, we would have been dead. Yeah. And it was just that little story that we thought, wow, we have been so preserved by the Mm -hmm. Lord. Our story's not over yet. And well, it certainly wasn't. And the other thing that was precious during that time was the verse that kept coming back to us every single time. It was really quite amazing. As we considered, do we go for transplant or not? The verse from Jeremiah 29 and 11 came to us. It was given to us as a gift, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And for us, that was God saying, there is a future here. We want go for the transplant and I will be with you through it. But each time we got a call, the nine times, that verse came to us in some way. One of the times a friend sent a a little ship with the verse on it. Another time I was reading a book and up it came. Text message. Text message from someone. Then one time we thought we hadn't had the verse. Mm -hmm. And we opened the drawer. And at the bottom of the drawer, right, I mean, really at the bottom of our filing cabinet drawer, we picked up this card. And it was from my mum. And it says, years and years, years earlier. and years earlier, and it was the verse from Jeremiah. I know the way that I have for you, declares the Lord. And we just felt the Lord was comforting us every time. I'm with you. Don't worry. Because what I was going to ask before you kind of preempted that with your answer was, did you ever think that you just were going to run out of time? But obviously, each and every time, the Lord gave you that assurance that there was hope, that there was a future, that this wasn't the end. No. I still felt I had a quality of life. I wouldn't have said I I wasn't so worried that I wasn't going to make it. I must say some people are like that and maybe their deterioration is a lot faster. Mine was still relatively gradual, although I was down to 12% lung capacity before transplant. So it was a struggle probably doing anything, basically. And I was on oxygen 24 hours a day, but I don't think I missed a day of getting up and dressed and showered. And I used to head out, even though Adrian was out at work, I always made sure I was out every day. I would get into the car, even though it took me half an hour to get my breath back in the car. I would drive into town, get a mobility scooter, scoot about town. (laughs) Just to do, you know, you just felt you had to keep your spirits up and keep doing things. Yeah. I definitely think that helped me. 
I'm not one of these people that can shut away in the house. That's why it's quite difficult at the moment, being in the shielding category. <laughs> so the time comes, the operations before you. Perhaps you could just talk through the, the experience there. I know for an awful lot of it, Audrey, you wouldn't have been conscious about what you were going through. Well, they were taking me into surgery. We both had a tremendous sense of peace. And as Adrian said, we're always optimistic. And we said our goodbyes and said, don't worry, I'll see you in a few hours' time. I'll be up having breakfast and <laughs> all that kind of thing. Because I'd heard of transplant patients who were sitting up in a chair having their breakfast the next day. And I always just assumed that would be me. However, it wasn't. <laughs> the, the surgery, I don't know, maybe it was about seven hours or something. Not having our suitcase with us, Adrian dashed off to Asda to try and buy all his clothes and get sorted. And I think he was quite peaceful during that time, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Quite peace, everything would go okay. But when he returned, the nurse that was looking after me sort of indicated that things just weren't maybe going quite as well as we had hoped. I was out of surgery, but statistics weren't just looking too good. But as the evening wore on, they got worse and worse. And I'll let Adrian tell you about this because, as you say, I was unconscious at this stage and they actually had me in a induced coma for two weeks okay. after transplant. So this is Adrian's experience now. I suppose it's an experience that I will never really forget. I was all alone in Newcastle. Audrey was poorly and things looked like they were heading the wrong direction. I was kind of lost. And I picked up the phone to phone somebody I knew who said it would help if there was ever any need. And he wasn't in. And then I looked through it and I thought, oh, what can I do now? And then I looked up the phone and I thought, what am I being so stupid for? I phoned Jim McMaster. I phoned Jim and said, look, Jim, I need, need you to come and pray with me. That's it. No messing about. So Jim came over. And that night was just a heavenly experience. Not a, a joyful experience in one sense an experience when I saw that God answers prayer and Jim wasn't messing about he got down on his knees in the hospital and he saw God's face and he wrestled with God I just saw God working in a marvelous way in the hospital the story's often been told that Jim was on his knees praying and it looked like a pretty hopeless situation we were waiting for the next feedback from the professor and professor Dark came into the room where Jim was praying just a little family room there and waited for Jim to finish his prayer. Very respectfully told us that there was hope and that as far as our prayer is concerned, there's probably going to be an answer. And in a most remarkable way, a lung that wasn't working suddenly started working. Now, we don't doubt God's miraculous hand and we think we saw it that day in an incredible way. They have had to do a medical study on what actually happened to Audrey. Normally, people would die with that condition. In the goodness of God, Audrey actually lived. What was it called? A reperfusion? A lung reperfusion injury. Injury. There's no right. explanation for it. And it's basically the lung appears fine in the donor, and then when they transfer it into the recipient's body, for some reason it just freezes. And usually these people would die within a few days of transplant. I think it's very, very rare that anyone actually would come through that. But that same lung is still working today. Yeah. Twelve and a half years later. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Well, yeah. The doctor came into the room and says that we he thinks they could do something to nurse Audrey back to health, but it might take a while. And we just and tears running down my face, tears of joy saying you can have as long as you like. Just give her back to us. Well, there we are. Uh, Audrey did make a remarkable recovery. 
Was it 27 days you've had in the hospital? 28 days? In intensive intensive care. care. 28 days in intensive care, then a few weeks in just the normal kind of high dependency wards. And then eventually we thought, well, we won't be home for Christmas. And this is by October. And then all of a sudden they must have needed the bed. They said, you're going home. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That was it. And they had already had to do a, a, a walk test and climb stairs. And I said, what's the point of that? We live in a bungalow. We don't have stairs. <laughs> but that was the rule. So I, got... I was determined. I would climb these stairs. <laughs> yeah. And we made it and well, got home. It got, was great. We got home and the family decorated the house and balloons everywhere. And it really was a wonderful thing. Audrey, when she was trying to get back to health again, and this is a, another topic, she was quite determined to get moving. And so she was doing something on the floor one day. And then she realised she couldn't get off the floor. She was stuck on the floor. And so I don't know how Audrey ever got... You did get off the floor eventually, didn't you? Well, you would not believe, you know, 28 days in intensive care, how much... Well, I had been very ill as well, of course, but I literally couldn't wait there at all. I remember the first time they sat me up and I just flopped over. You just could not hold yourself up. And then when they said they would try and get me to walk, I thought... I don't know how you're ever going to get me to walk. <laughs> so it was learning all these things from scratch again. And just in that length of time, the muscle power that you lose lying in a bed is incredible. So it was a wee bit of an uphill struggle. The physio came to the house and had a huge wound, had to be looked at every day as well, which the nurse came in for months about looking at that. And we got a treadmill and I gradually moved on from the physio exercises to the treadmill. And yeah, it, it probably did take me a year at least to really feel the benefit of the transplant. But yeah, looking back now, I mean, that's 12 and a half years ago. It's just been incredible really yeah. to have that extension on your life. We feel quite privileged in a way that God allowed us to see his power like that working in our life and we think who are we that he should even allow us to see him working in our life we felt quite privileged really and it has taught us so many lessons to rely on God and unfortunately when you do get your strength back again like we were saying earlier you subconsciously start to try and sort things yourself again and yeah. you have to remind yourself I've learned that lesson why do I keep going back the way again <laughs> it's called human nature I think so, yeah. i just go back. I must mention one other name, Dan. I yeah. mentioned with the names. I must say Robert and Jenny Thompson were there through the journey as well. And the reason why this is quite significant is Robert is a doctor and I'm an umpty, as they say in Scotland. He knew about the medical things and I knew nothing about the medical things. And Robert was there to explain all the things that Audrey was getting in and I think Robert probably had a few words in the ears of a few doctors and nurses as well just to encourage them and help Audrey in the way so we're so so blessed that Robert and Jenny were there through part of the journey as well. Mm -hmm. uh, a more wonderful couple you would struggle to meet. Mm -hmm. Not that I'd ever tell Robert that, I'd still tell him he was a numpty. <laughs> <laughs> they were very good to us. <laughs> but again it's incredible that the Lord had the right people in the right place there's a person who you know and you trust and you love and behind the scenes maybe pulling strings or at least doing something of practical use. And that happened so many times. There's lots of stories we could tell you, Dan. Even after transplant, I had a wee bit of a scare 
funny things were happening with my tongue and they thought it was a condition where your transplanted lungs started to reject your body. Okay. Which is quite unusual. I went to all the appointments myself normally. There it was through in the dental hospital in Dundee and the consultant said to me, I'm going to have to keep you in and do a biopsy. And I said, oh dear, I've only put an hour's ticket on the car. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll go and put a ticket on your car for you. And I said, oh, here's a consultant offering to go and put a ticket on my car. And I said, no, not at all. He says, no, I'm not having you walking down that hill and back up again. They said, have you trust me? And I said, well, of course I trust you. (laughs) So anyway, he went away, put a ticket on my car. And when he came back, he said, I'm quite concerned about what this could be for you. But he said, I wasn't being nosy, but I happened to notice one of your CDs in the car. Are you a Christian? And I said, I am. He says, well, that makes puts a whole different slant on the picture. He says, I'm a Christian too. And it was just amazing. God put Christians in my path at different points, especially when I was getting bad news, when I needed someone there that I could talk to about it. Yeah. Yeah. After the treatment and the recovery, what was the prognosis as far as length of time the lung was supposed to work for? Because I was at the celebration that surpassed that diagnosis. It's maybe a bit different now, but at the time when I got my transplant, they said an average of eight years you would get. That's what you'd hope to get. But some people got up to about 20 years. We met a chap in clinic once. And he was about 21 years. He was a world record holder. He was the longest surviving single lung transplant. I think he's gone now, unfortunately, but I was aiming to beat his record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we've surpassed the eight years. We're at 12 and a half and very thankful. There is deterioration again. I got about 40% lung capacity after transplant and I'm down to about 25 now. So I am starting to get a bit breathless again and actually this week just got oxygen again, which is a first. I got a concentrator this week, but it's really to help me try and do a bit more walking, a bit more exercise. Because if it's such hard work to go on the treadmill, it puts you off. (laughs) Yeah. But we're going to try with the oxygen and hopefully just get a bit fitness level up again. What will happen with the lung when it goes back down will you be able to get another transplant is that the hope (laughs) well i'm not sure on that one it's not unknown certainly as long as your kidneys and liver and all the the rest of your body is functioning well which it does seem to be actually my kidneys are doing really well apparently for all that length of time and otherwise i'm doing well i'm not sure it depends on the waiting list i'm sure with coronavirus too there's not many transplants going on, which will mean the list will be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's only fair that maybe people get one opportunity rather than some of us getting two opportunities at a transplant. We leave it with the Lord. Yeah. I don't worry about the future right now because I'm waiting on the Lord to come back any day. There's no point in me thinking five years down the line when I think he's coming very soon. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I was going to say just as you were going through the story. I think for many Christians, if they were given the opportunity to go through what you experienced or to have a smooth, almost bump-free ride through life, most would choose the smooth option. But do you think your experiences have drawn you closer to the Lord? I think the reality is no one has a smooth, bump-free journey through life. Mm. 
And I suppose everybody looks back and says, hey, so-and-so's having an easy ride, but we don't know always what happens. You know, there's families that have miscarriages and the sadness of that. There's people with their own health problems. There's a mental health pandemic, really, that's around about for several years. So people do have difficulties. We will say that, you know, even in our struggles, the Lord has been there for us. I would love to claim that it's made a spiritual impact that it ought to have done in my life. But I slipped back into bad habits very quickly. I let the Lord down, and I'm sure Audrey probably feels the same as well at times. We'd love to say we're some sort of super spiritual holy people, but all I can say is, woe is me, for I'm undone, mm. uh, to quote the words of uh, Isaiah. And I realize that, you know, we're, we're, we're dwelling well. The Lord is so holy, and we're so unholy, and we need to be more conformed to his image. Yeah. yeah. The only thing about sharing your testimony like this before you've reached the end of the journey is there's always a chance of slipping up too. Mm-hmm. And we're always conscious of that. The Lord has kept us up till now. Um, we praise God for everything that he's done for us. He's been so faithful. And yes, and I often said to Adrian, you could have had a really uneventful life <laughs> if you hadn't married me. <laughs> but life certainly has been interesting and it's brought many, many precious things out. You know, the kindness of people and seeing how people cared, you know, the prayers of people all over the world. It really would touch your heart and you realise how wonderful it is to be part of God's great family. You know, you've got brothers and sisters right across the world and, yeah, we just praise God for them and we just hope that our story is able to help other people. I know that definitely it helps me speak to people. I have a much more of an empathy for people with difficulties now and I feel I can draw alongside and hopefully try and help them. There's not much we can do at the moment, but I just am trying to find books to send to people and that's my little ministry at the moment because we're quite restricted the way things are. But we just hope our story can help others if they're going through similar things. And that's that's the only reason I should say we're not um, trying to say we're in great. We want glory to come to God from it, not to us. Yeah, we don't want any blue plaques outside our house or anything like that. We just simply would rather dwell in the Father's house and in the house of glory and be with him forever and, and have less of self and more of him. You know, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that's what we, we want to, to have in our lives now. And I suppose we're, we're, we're kind of slightly not fed up. That's the wrong phrase. We don't want to talk about ourselves so much. We want to really talk about him. It reminds me of a young man I once heard give his testimony and he says, I don't want to talk about myself. I just want to talk about the Lord. And, and that was all glory to the Lord that day. Yeah. Without him, our story would have been a whole lot different. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how people cope that are not Christians when they get earth-shattering news like that and lose loved ones. Just such a terrible experience. But not to have the Lord as your rock. I talked about the rug being pulled from under my feet and there was a sense of that. But underneath our feet was the rock, Christ Jesus. And he never moves and he never changes. So you always have your feet upon that solid ground and it just must be horrible for unsaved people to be sinking. There are people out there who are going through experiences. We need to help rescue them from that sinking sand, help them to find their feet, find the rock, Christ Jesus in their life. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. 
I usually end each episode by asking if there's a particular verse that has had a significance. Now, you've mentioned Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Is that the verse that you would give at this moment in time? Well, for me, I always love to say, I know it's a cliche, but I love to say Psalm 23. On the night that Audrey was poorly, Jim McMaster was reading some scriptures from Revelation regarding heaven. And I think deep down I was thinking, well, why is he reading that? Because Audrey's not going to heaven yet. She's not. Her time is not up. I just turned to Jim and said, Jim, read us Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And over our lives, that's been a very, very precious chapter for us. I know that when Audrey's dad was doing a lot of preaching and people maybe didn't grasp the preaching, he used to say, the Lord is my shepherd. And people would just spell out on their fingers, the Lord is my shepherd. And hold on to that promise that he can be my shepherd. And and that's a, a simple promise that we believe every day too. So that is a great psalm, you know, that even though you go through the valley, and often we do go through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us through that. But he also brings us to the green fields and he and he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And our life has not all been down. There's been so many high points. Yeah. And he has blessed us tremendously in so many other ways. It does say the Lord is no man's debtor, and we know from experience that whatever you give to God, you get 10 times more back. We've experienced that in our life. And I would say lots of Psalms were a help to me, especially in these days recovering. I found the Psalms a tremendous place to go. I had a terrible problem sleeping because I was in such high steroids. I'd be awake all night. Verses like, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. And there were just so many verses like that jumped out at me during that time. Yeah, the Psalms will always be very special to me, I think, for that reason. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing your testimony with us. Thank you, Dan, for having us. Yeah, we should really say, Dan, one of the highlights in our life is knowing you as well. Well, that's very kind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's lovely to get to know you down in Newcastle and... Even Adrian came to stay with you recently too. Yeah, well, there's always a room there. You guys know that now. There's just me and the dog, so you're always welcome. Thank you very much. We'll find out if Poppy and, and your dog get on. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Testimony. If you have any suggestions as to who would make a good interview, then please get in touch at testimonypodcast at outlook.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 